Okay, let's move on to, um, and this is going to seem unrelated at first, but it's connected. Let's move on to a theological component training. Uh, and here's the question. What are we supposed to do with the Old Testament? <laughs> what in the world are we supposed to do with the Old Testament? Is it, is it a bunch of stories that we learn from? Um, what do we do with the law? Are, 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 Muhammad, are you supposed to keep the Ten Commandments or not? Don't answer that. Because <laughs> I set you up if you answered it too soon. Are you supposed to keep the Ten Commandments or not? And, and what, what, what part of the Old Testament is required? What, is, it all, is it all instructional? Is it all uh, learn lessons from? And what about, um, what about the New Testament? There's a bunch of rules in there too. I mean, what, what part of the New Testament do I have to keep in order to, to be in good relationship with God? And the, these are questions that, that people struggle with a lot. And, um, and, and, it, and it makes the Bible a closed book to them. And so let me give you a, a, an eight-minute <laughs> um, tool or help. So there's, there's, you know there's two distinct types of covenants in the Old Testament. You know, we know that there's the, new, the Old Testament and the New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, but there's two, there's two covenants in the Old Testament. There's a covenant of law, works, um, conditional, and there's also in the Old Testament, there's the covenant of promise and grace. It's not just in the, in the New. So can you think of some unconditional covenants of promise in the Old Testament? Can anybody think of some? There's several of them. Abraham. Yeah. Abraham. Who said that? Yeah, so Abraham was an unconditional. There was no, if you do this, I'll do this. God said, I'm going to do this. Good example. That's a covenant of grace or uh, uh, an unconditional. What was another one? I heard somebody say something. Yeah, the, 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 the covenant God made was to, to Noah. There was, no if, there was no if you don't or whatever. It was just an unconditional covenant. What else? Think of another one. Yeah, so the covenant to David that, well, also, so, yeah, so Adam and David, out of, you know, your seed, singular, will crush his head. And, um, and, then, and then a promise made to David, you know, that a, that a son, a lineage, will sit on this throne. Those are, those are the four unconditional covenants of promise in the Old Testament. And then there's a the covenant of law, which we're familiar with, you know, the the, the Sinai conditional covenant, the Ten Commandments. But, and then those, those were, that conditional covenant was, if you do this, Israel, you'll get this land and you'll have a nation. If you did do this, Israelites, you'll live. <laughs> and so there was national and individual promises. So there was, but there was even grace, there was even grace in the Sinai covenant. How, how, where would you see grace in the Sinai covenant? Yeah, sacrifices. Anything else? Yeah, there was, a, there was a way made for people to not have the hand of judgment fall on them. But God said, if you do this, then I'm going to do this. How long was it between the warning and the judgment? A long time. I mean, there was grace in the timing, you know. It's like sometimes parents count to ten. God counted to, you know, hundreds sometimes. And so, 
Do we ignore all the ethical teachings in the Old Testament except only the commands that we find repeated in the New Testament? And in what place, if any, is there for the law in the Christian life? And if you have that question or some version of it, then I think we have correctly understood the gospel as good news. I think that's a good question. What place does this have in our lives? And I think if we ask the question, it's a good question because it means we understand the gospel. And so let me give you three points, and I, and, and, and I, I am hoping to be simple because I'm, I, I want to be as helpful as possible. But there's a distinction between the law and a covenant of law. What would be a difference between the law and a covenant of law? Any ideas? Thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good. Um, I was talking to, this is, this is off subject, but I was talking to some airmen out of town a couple of weeks ago. There's a group, about 60 of them, and one chaplain asked some questions, and they all just stood there, and then it was my turn, and they're all like brand new in the Air Force for like, like two years. And I said, I said, have you guys, you guys have all heard, um, there's no such thing as a stupid question, right? And they all in their heads. I said, yes, there is. We all know there's a stupid question. And they all started laughing. One guy high-fived his friend. I said, so, I said so, so when people say that, what they mean is, don't be afraid to ask a stupid question. <laughs> because we all know there's stupid questions, and that's why, we frequent, that's why I frequently think, okay, is that a stupid question or not? So, um, so we all know the stupid questions. But... Don't be afraid of asking one. And that, that's really the meaning of it. And the, David was right. The, um, the law is anything that comes from God in the form of an imperative. That's, that's technically the law. So Old and New Testament issue commands. And the law, as a thing, is an expression of the character of God. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. These things are descriptions of the character of God, the, the moral law. And then the covenant of law is this idea of, of gaining and maintaining relationship with God by keeping all these imperatives. So there's a distinction between those two. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the Jews, the Jews, strictly speaking, the Jews believed they were saved by keeping. They did not believe they were saved by keeping the laws. They believed they were saved because God chose them. They were God's covenant people. And they believe they stay saved by keeping the law. And, but biblically, there's nothing wrong with the commandments. You can see that in the Old Testament. They're an expression of God's moral character. So, biblically, the law is good, but there's no way we can be saved by keeping the law, and that's, and that's the distinction. And that brings us to another, another important point about looking at the Old Testament is, is there's, there's different kinds of law in the Old Testament. This becomes confusing. There's moral and civil and ceremonial um, so what would be an example, maybe not a verse, but an idea? What would be an example of, a, say, a civil law in the Old Testament? Can you think of one off the top of your head? What's that? Welcome the stranger. Yeah. Build a paraffin around your roof so your guests won't fall off and die. Those were, those were civil laws. What about ceremonial laws? Yeah, all the washing and then moral, a moral law. The Ten Commandments would be 
moral laws. Um, and so these, 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 they weren't given in isolation. They, they, when, when God gave the Ten Commandments on Sinai, it's a, at the same time, he gave all the, if you read, the, he gave all the civil and ceremonial laws as well because he was building a theocracy, a nation. And so um, go to the New Testament. Peter has this vision of this sheet coming down from heaven and what was on the sheet. A bunch of animals, and they were clean and unclean, ceremonial unclean, ceremonial clean animals. And, and God said, eat. And Peter said, no way. God said, eat. They're all clean. And that was to tell him that I am moving out to the Gentiles. The mission to the Gentiles is of me. And so um, the old covenant has been rendered obsolete. I mean, that was clear. But then the moral law transcends all that because the moral law is a description of the character of God. It's a representation of who God is. It's not something God thought up as being good for us, but it's God revealing to us who he is. And then when Jesus summed up the whole Old Testament, he wasn't summing up the moral and civil laws. He was, I mean, the civil and ceremonies. He summed up the moral law and he summed it up with how? What, what did he say? Love God and love people. Yeah. And so in terms of the moral law, God's expectations have not changed. Uh, they're expressions of his nature and character. So what are we supposed to do with them? And how is it different now than before the gospel? And so if you look in the New Testament, there's, there's really three uses of the moral law. There's, there's, um, it's just a description of reality, how societies work. So even non-Christian people who apply the moral law, they have better lives. In Romans 13, God uses um, laws to curb criminal behavior. It's a part of civil society, you know, that God, that these people that God has made authorities of, of justice, they're, they're, his, they're his hand to curb criminal authority and to restrain evil, even if they're not believers. And then Romans 7 says the moral law reveals our sin. It was like a schoolmaster bringing us to Christ. So the moral law can show us our sin. And then there's what's called the normative use. The normative use are norms for Christian life. And so we do look at, we do look at the, the, the New Testament and we see these principles about how to act towards one another and how husbands and wives are to act. And we have to see these things as they're intended. And that is, these are no longer capable of con- condemning us. They don't stand over us and judge us. They now have been, Jeremiah said, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. So we've been given a new heart, and now we, we, we are to see these things differently. Unfortunately, the church hasn't always, but we're supposed to see these things differently now. It, it's become a delight, even though we continue to struggle with it. And, and I could ask you, if, you know, this is a room full of believers. I would say, who struggles with following the moral law of God? I would say, every hand would raise. I would say, who in this room delights in the moral law of God? Every hand in this room would raise. And that's the work of God inside of us. We still struggle, but you do delight in, in, the, in the moral law. You love it. You don't, you, don't, you don't sin all you want to anymore. You sin way more than you want to anymore. That's a sign of regeneration. And the person for whom this makes no sense at all likely hasn't been regenerated at all. And so the balance, you know, there's legalism was a, a, is and was a, people who said the law is the means to obtain life. Antinomianism, 
um, against the law, that's what that word means, means we're free from all obligations to the law. And the truth is, the law is not the means to attain life, and we're not free from all obligations because now love obligates us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to love the moral law. And so one way I've heard it stated, the shift, which I love, it's because it's so simple, is it's not do this and you will live. That was, that was the covenant of works. It's live and you will do this. That's the covenant of grace. And I, I, we talked about the par- parable of the talents Thursday night with the students. And um, they, um, the, the guy had two, the guy, one guy had five, one guy had two, doubled, doubled their investment. One had one and he was snarky and hit it in the ground and, and judgmental of the master. And I, I told him that in the Greek, there's, there's, there's uh, some emotions that are missing in the English. And, and the idea, there's a couple of words that when these, when these guys were, were waiting for the master to return, the ones who, who had, returned, had returned their investment, there was this sparkle in their eyes. And they were just giddy, excited, ready to look. Josh, look, you know, like an employee, one of Josh's employees who's done a good job and he can't wait for Josh to come and see what he's done. He's excited. And, and that happens when, when people love their masters or, or, or love the one they're trying to please. And, and that's what was going on with these guys. They, they weren't primarily investors. They were primarily lovers. And that's how the, that's how the New Testament presents us. That we've been given a stewardship and we see ourselves primarily often as, I got a stewardship, I got to make good on this because I'm an investor versus I'm a lover. I, I, I love the master. He's given me this. I can't wait to return some investment. And one was given five and returned five. One was given two, returned two. There was different levels of stewardship, different level of return. But what did the master say to both of them? Do you remember that parable? Anybody have a paraphrase on, on what he said to both of those guys? He said, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And he said, um, enter into your master's joy. Come and share your master's joy. He didn't say, he said, I'm going to give you more responsibility. He did say that. But what was the, the climax? It was... Yeah, you've been faithful here. I'm going to give you more. Then he said, now come and, and share my joy. And I think that's um, very powerful and very instructive. So, the law can never do more than command. The law, the brute law. It can command. Obedience to the law is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. The law can't do any more now in sanctification than it did in our justification. Moral laws by themselves can't make us more like Jesus any more than they can give us relationship with him in the first place. But the fact of what God has done for us in the gospel drives the imperative what God wants from us. And so his spirit at work in us gives us a love for the moral law and gives us a power to obey the moral law. So... Do I have to obey the moral law? Depends on what you mean by that. What's the heart behind the question? If you mean, does the moral law save me? No, it never has been able to save. 
If I'm saved, will I want to obey the moral law? Will I be able to obey the moral law? Yes, in increasing fashion. So you've been given the Spirit of God who's conforming you to the image of the Son of God who is the exact representation of God <laughs> and the one whose character is revealed in the moral law. So we're all the way back to, to skill training. What, is this, what does this mean for us? It means we apply ideas like direction, not perfection, training, not trying, fighting is winning, and we add in things like grace is not opposed to effort but earning. Maybe add in the um, obedience because we're loved, not in order to be loved. Or here's a new one that resonated with several people Thursday, obedience with a sparkle in our eyes. <laughs> yeah, I think that captures the, the New Testament spirit. And so we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's the goal of our sanctification. We were saved in order to be sanctified, in order to be glorified. All that is salvation. We, we tend to think salvation is the first part. Salvation is complete when we're dead, when, we're, when we've been resurrected. And in the meantime, we're being transformed to the, conformed to the image of Christ. What does that mean? Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Who for the joy set before him obeyed. obeyed. And so if we want to help people, all the way back to how we started, if we want to help people, at the, we need to help them at the heart level. And yeah, we, if, if they're just making bad external choices, we need to help them with habits and skills and all the rest. But we have to pay careful attention to the heart. Because that's, that's where it all flows from. That's where the Christian life flows from. And I think people get frustrated. The psychologists get frustrated and say self-control doesn't work. Um, because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, ultimately. And I think that when we help people in their lives and we are partners with them in investigating what's God doing at the heart level, then we're really able to help people uh, change in ways that God is calling them to change. So good theology informs good counseling methodology at the same time. It's all tied together. Any questions on that aren't too deep or complicated for me? Um, on that whole law grace conversation off the top of your head or even clarifying or further statements if you think of one uh, send it my way